Well, good evening. I'm Noah. I'm the pastoral assistant here. It's a little hot, Zach. Appreciate it. Um, and that means that I do whatever Zach tells me to do. So, um, But it's been a joy and a privilege to be able to uh, work along Zach and the elders and um, all of you and get to know you all better and to be able to really be a part of Redeemer. And so thank you for letting me have the opportunity to preach. Thank you to Zach and the elders for permitting me to do this as I'm in one of my last classes now in seminary, which is preaching. And so this is a great privilege and honor, and it's weighty, uh, but I love you guys. And so it's going to be fun. And I pray that as we talk about a very familiar story, so we're going to be talking about David and Goliath, I pray that you not let your familiarity with the story um, make it seem boring or, or that you would turn your ears off or that you would uh, zone out because it's a story that you know, you know how it goes, most likely. Um, and I just pray that you just, there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible's complete. We don't, we don't need new concepts. We don't need new ideas. Um, the Bible is complete and it is full and God has rich truths for us, um, n- not in children's church, um, even with a story like David and Goliath. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 um, this evening. And, but before we get into it, so something that we do as uh, students in our preaching class is we have to come up with illustrations. So this week I was thinking, what can I possibly share to illustrate the story of David and Goliath? And um, it just so happened that... Um, uh, we got rats this week, so they're outside, so I promised Katie I'd make that disclaimer, <laughs> so you guys won't not come over to our house, but they're outside, um, but come Monday morning, I'm, I'm calling the pest control, and, uh, and I'm like, you gotta, you, like, help, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a rat, and so Our, the front of our house, um, our new house, faces the west. And so in the evening time, uh, the sun starts to set. And uh, it was a rainy day, uh, but the clouds broke a little bit. And, um, and so the sun was shining through. And I, like a scared Israelite, uh, was calling my pest control, saying, help, help, I don't know what to do. And uh, lo and behold, I opened my front door, and then with, with rays of sunshine beaming on him, was walking up to my front door, our pest control guy. And uh, he walks in, and he gets the rat, and he leaves. And then he does the same thing the next morning <laughs> with more rats. Um, and so in this story, I'm the cowering Israelites, terrified out of my mind, because I've never seen a rat in person before, and there's this huge one just right here. And um, it, it wasn't as big when it got wet. I think it was fluffy. And, um, but, and then so the rat, ironically, is Goliath. Never saw that. I, I think the rat would probably disagree. But. And then um, my pest control guy is David. And so that's about as good as I got with illustrations this week. Um, but uh, I thought that that was funny timing. So. Um, but before we get into our passage... In 1 Samuel 17, we're going to go through the whole chapter, so you'll have to stick with me. 
I think it's really, really important when we read the Bible that we, it's situated properly in its context. And so we're going to go through a few passages. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen if you'd like. But this is going to set up kind of things that have led up to the narrative of David and Goliath that are really key to understanding what's going on and what the Lord is doing in that passage there. So the first passage for context that we're going to look at is 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. I'll turn there myself. First Samuel is pretty early on in the Bible. If you don't know where it is, there's no shame in turning to the table of contents. If you need a Bible, there's uh, some black ones back there that uh, you are free to take and take home if you don't have one. So let's see. First Samuel 8, 4 through 9. If I can get there. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I've brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the first thing we see is not only Israel's demand for a king, but Israel's rejection of God as their king. So we see these two things here, and that's really important to know moving forward. So we see the rejection of God as their king, yet they're still demanding a king like the other nations. They want to be like everyone else. They want a king like the other nations. The other nations have kings. They want a king like that, but they don't want God to be their king. They want a king like the other nations. Um, So the next kind of historical, cultural, or not cultural, contextual passage that we're going to be looking at It's 1 Samuel 10.1. It's really 1 through 16, but we'll just read the first verse. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, him being Saul, and kissed him and said, Has the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So this guy Saul comes along. Uh, This is interesting. Uh, so Saul's name in Hebrew is Shaul, and uh, that means the one asked for. So Israel asked for a king, and they, they got it. And uh, we're going to see that that wasn't a, a great thing um, here in a little bit. So then chapters 13 through 15, don't worry, we're not going to read all those. Um, but they really show Saul's, dec- Saul's decline and his rebellion and his downfall. And so we'll just read um, verse 26 of chapter 15 to show that. Let me just find it. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then we come to chapter 16, uh, which is, so 
chapter 17 starts the David and Goliath narrative. Uh, now we're in chapter 16, right before that. And Scripture has, especially in the narrative parts, has a way of building suspense. And so what's going to happen right before this famous Bible story that we all know? What, what kind of thing could set it up? Well, we see that God chooses a king for himself. So chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And then in uh, verse 13, we see David's anointing. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we have all these events leading up to the story of David and Goliath. We have uh, Israel's rejection of God as their king, yet their demand for a king. Then they're given a king, and that king is rebellious, and the Lord says no. And then God provides for himself a king. And we see him get anointed, not only with oil poured upon his head, but with the rush of the Spirit upon him. So now, we're in the story. So I'll read 1 through 11 of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Then Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. So now we enter into a stressor. We see the problem. So what is the problem? That's a really important question. 
The problem seems like the Philistines. The problem seems like Goliath, this huge nine and a half foot tall man um, spitting out, you know, disses on God and Israelites. You know, that's not cool. They're in, they're in Soko. They're in, they're, they're in Israel's land. Something's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. And he's just standing here in front of him, just pointing a finger saying, you know, I defy you. I defy your God. So I can imagine being an Israelite and looking and saying, man, this, this guy's a problem. <laughs> like, this is not good. I'd be afraid. I'd probably be afraid. I'm afraid when I see, like, Blake's brother is really tall. And, you know, he's, I mean, he's not nine and a half feet tall, but sometimes I stood between Blake and his brother and Blake's wedding, and um, I kind of felt like a dwarf. I was just like, <laughs> I felt like a small child. And um, so I can only imagine uh, the fear that I would feel um, looking at this large champion of a man. I have a professor who says a misdiagnosis of the problem leads to a misdiagnosis of the remedy. So I guess this was about a year ago or so. I started having a lot of lower back problems. And I'm like, man, something's jacked up in my lower back. And um, I started going to the doctor and doing all these things. And he's like, oh, it's your hamstrings. I was like, no, no it's, it's my back. And he's like, it's your hamstrings. And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, yeah, your quads are, are too strong, are too strong, or my hamstrings aren't strong enough as my quads. That's probably a better way to put it. I don't, I skip leg day. So, um, but he's like, no, this is the issue. So just start working out your hamstrings more and um, it'll fix your hips and then your back won't hurt anymore. And I was like, but, but it hurts right here. <laughs> I was working out my legs going to fix it, but I did and sure enough. But my perceived issue wasn't the actual issue. And it can be the same with a lot of things, um, especially like emotional things. Like, I'm really mad about this. And it's like, okay, well, like, some stuff probably happened in your childhood over here, and that's why. And it's like, okay, well, that's probably fair. And um, so their perceived issue is this huge Philistine in front of them. But the actual issue, I believe, is their rejection of God as their king. I think that that is what led them, as a result of their own idolatry, is what led them into this situation. So already they're looking at this Philistine and these Philistines in front of them in their land saying, man, this is a problem. They rejected God as a result of their own idolatry. So with a misdiagnosis of the problem, start looking for a misdiagnosis of the remedy. So We've had the stress, so the problem's been introduced. Now they go on a search. So they, they're looking for ways to solve this problem. They're trying to come up with a solution matching the problem of Goliath. You know, they're like, we don't have any guys nine and a half feet tall. We don't, we don't got that. And so they're like, you want to go? And Saul's afraid, it says so clearly in the text. Uh, but instead, uh, this happens. So please continue reading along with me in verse 12. Now David, notice, notice that it just ends with they were all great, greatly afraid in verse 11. And then in t- verse 12, it picks up. Now David 
was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul, and the man was already old and advanced in years. Three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three elders followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine? this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, as is typical for an older brother to a younger brother. (laughs) And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, and you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. The people answered him again as before. When the words of David, that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So we have this tension. They're like, where's, they're looking for a remedy to their problem. They're looking for a man of the stature who can take on Goliath. And then the story cuts, and we start seeing pictures of the shepherd boy going back and forth, the youngest in his family. Their search has led them here, and what they found has completely subverted their expectations. So now we come to the solution. The solutions in God's stories are always grace. Look at verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So don't forget the context. Remember chapter 16, 13. David is anointed. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And it's clear that David's confidence is not in his own ability. Even in the things that David has accomplished, in killing lions and bears with his bare hands, which is pretty metal, is, uh, he accredits to God. He doesn't accredit to himself. So that's really important to understand what happens when David goes up against Goliath. So let's pick up in 41 now. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. But the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and with the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet with the Philistine. 
And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. I'll stop there because it gets kind of graphic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why this is a kid's story. You guys, you, you guys have eyes. You can read the next few verses for yourselves. But we see that the solution is grace. David has no merit of his own that he can slay this Philistine, this behemoth of a man. And yet he does. And his confidence is on the Lord the entire time. Not once does he doubt the Lord. And then we could keep reading and we can see that there's a new situation now. So we started out in this situation where Israel had rejected their king and then somehow they ended up with Philistines in their land and one speaking out and defying God. But the situation now is that this little shepherd boy has come up and has killed the Philistine. If you keep reading, you would see that the Israelites enjoy a victory that they did not win. They reap the spoils. They plunder the Philistines. They enjoy a war that all they did was cower. Yet they are the ones who get to enjoy it. And David did not win of his own strength. So that's the passage. So the sermon is titled, The Anointed One of God. So in an application, uh, Graham Goldsworthy writes, When it comes to his, David's, slaying of Goliath, it is true, as the unique anointed one of God, that he wins the battle. The application of this truth to the believer is somewhat different from a simple identification of the believer with David. Rather, we should identify with the ordinary people of God, the soldiers who stand and watch the battle fought on their behalf. Because David is acting as God's anointed one. We know on this side of the cross, and you can see it in David's writings as he talks about uh, his future seed and descendant, that David is pointing toward Christ. David is a type of Christ. And types reveal something greater and other than themselves. So this story, although it's about David, in the canon of the entirety of Scripture, it's really not. We don't want to be like David, because if you keep reading, you'll see David does some not cool things. <laughs> to put it lightly, I think in the list of aggressions, David's list is probably longer than Saul's. Uh, but David constantly goes back to the Lord and repents. That's the difference between them. But we don't want to be like David. But David points us. David is the signpost that points us to Christ. In, in 1 Samuel 16, when it talks about Samuel anointing him, it, it literally uses the word Messiah. 
He is God's anointed one. He is anointed one means Messiah. Samuel messiahed him. It's no ironic thing that an unlikely circumstance, an unlikely person, an unlikely solution to this problem came from God's anointed one, from the Messiah. We are the cowering Israelites and Jesus is the one who wins the battle on our behalf. And we enjoy his victory that he's already fought as if it were our own. And as if to point to this, the very last verse of the chapter is so cool. It's so cool. It's like cooler than like an end credit scene of like a Marvel movie. It's so cool. Verse 59. So, so they spend the rest of the chapter looking for David. They're like, who is this guy? They find him. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And then the, the, chapter, the chapter is over. That's just so cool. We know this side of the cross, what that means. It's like, oh man, that's where Jesus came from. And it points to Jesus. Jesus fights our battles. So what do we do? I, I, hear, I hear what Jesus has done. I see how it's related to David doing this in the text, but what do I do? Sometimes the best application, regardless of what you're going through, is to behold him. There are lots of trials that we all face. Maybe you fought in the car with your spouse on the way over here tonight. We didn't. That wasn't a, that wasn't a jab. <laughs> Maybe you're struggling being patient with your kids. Maybe you're taking care of someone who's sick and you're just really tired. I don't think a list of ways, things you can do is going to help that much. But man, when I'm struggling with my patience and when I'm getting angry, how much more will I be loving and compassionate and like Christ in those situations if I just ask, am I beholding Christ and all that he has done and the battles that he's won for me? Am I beholding Christ? Am I holding him up above all else? How's my wonder? I think Keith used to say that, Keith Miller, former pastor and mentor of mine, still my mentor. How's your wonder? Do you find yourself in awe of God? The reason why waking up and reading your Bible is so important is because every day you fight for awe. You're going to be in awe of something. It's just a question of what you're in awe of. Courtesy of Brian Payne in Auburn, Alabama. (laughs) Are you in awe of Jesus and what he has done for you? Because as soon as that gets out of line, man, I start lashing out in anger. My, my fuse is short. But man, if I look at all that Jesus has done for me, that can make a huge difference 
and how I look at myself and how I look at those around me. And it allows God to do things in us. So behold Christ. Behold him on the cross. Behold what he did after the cross, what he did through the cross. We get to enjoy a battle that we did not win ourselves, but that was won on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. Sometimes we don't know the right thing to do. Sometimes we don't know the next step. But Lord, we ask that as a first step every day, that you would captivate our hearts and help us be in awe and in wonder of just the grace that you've poured out on us. Lord, that we, for some reason, we get to enjoy a battle that we did not win. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who's not a Christian, that they see the battle going on and that they see that it's not going well. Lord, I I pray for salvation for those who don't know you. And God, I ask that you would save them and let them join in celebrating this battle that they too did not fight on their own. Lord, help us to love each other better. Help us to behold you more and shape our lives out of our wonder and awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen.